Okay, so uh, now we're going to discuss uh, inpatient dermatology survival guide. Now, I, I recognize that most of you don't spend um, time in the hospital and aren't necessarily seeing, you know, the super complex hospitalized patient population that um, that we might see at some academic centers. But um, these cases are important nonetheless because they do um, occasionally show up, and um, you have to know how to manage them when they do. Um, but more than that, um, it's really about a, a philosophy of how we approach complex patients and how we uh, view ourselves um, as members of the broader medical community um, in dermatology. Uh, I have no disclosures uh, relevant to this talk. Um, so our objectives uh, today are going to be to discuss the impact of dermatology consultation on the care of medically complex hospitalized patients. We'll discuss ways in which the derm consultant can be an effective contributor to patient management. And we'll use some case examples to review high-yield topics um, with diagnosis and management pearls uh, relevant to inpatients. Um, so by way of background, as I mentioned, you know, dermatology is primarily an outpatient specialty. So most dermatologists um, don't um, spend time seeing patients in the hospital, and, and those who do um, spend very little time doing so. Um, so what this means uh, simply is that the care of some of uh, the sickest um, patients with dermatologic conditions has shifted um, onto our generalist colleagues. Uh, and, you know, we might pose the question, is this a problem? Um, well, it's not that those colleagues aren't smarter, they don't know what they're doing, but they simply haven't received dermatologic training. And so they may be uncomfortable recognizing and, uh, and treating cutaneous diseases. They may not perform comprehensive skin exams. Um, they may not know what to look for or appreciate the significance of specific findings when they're there. And there's been some literature to, um, to look at this topic, uh, primarily um, put out by uh, members of the Society of Dermatology Hospitalists. And uh, what that has shown is that the primary team, among other things, may not identify 77% um, of skin findings. Um, the derm consult, um, consult team may change the final diagnosis in 60 to 70% of the time. Um, we, a few years ago, looked back at our own um, consult experience um, and uh, found that uh, among our consults, um, about a fifth to a quarter of them um, were from the Hemonc uh, bone marrow transplant service. Um, half of those were neutropenic, 30% um, were bone marrow transplant recipients, so really speaking to the complexity of these cases. Uh, and in about 60%, um, the final dermatologic diagnosis was not included in the differential of the primary team, so we gave them credit if anywhere in the differential um, the final diagnosis appeared um, and 60% of the time, um, we came up with something that was not uh, even on their radar. So this is really, again, not um, to say that, uh, that uh, the primary team, you know, uh, doesn't, doesn't know what they're doing per se, but it speaks more to the special expertise of the dermatologist uh, and really other subspecialists uh, in other fields um, and the importance of serving in this capacity. So, um, we have the opportunity to serve. It's something that I, I would submit is, is a really important service. Um, it also speaks to the importance of improving training um, for students, residents, and our colleagues, um, because the reality is um, not every patient with a skin condition can see a dermatologist. So here's where I shift to sort of the philosophical um, approach uh, to, to successful inpatient consultation. Um, we need to know when a situation demands our urgent attention and really relish those opportunities to make a real difference for our patients. We can't be afraid to advocate for our patients. We don't want to sell ourselves short. Don't assume that the primary team, quote, knows better. 
And lastly, I'm a big fan of putting my nickel down, you know, saying out loud what I think something is. But I also carefully go through the exercise of um, saying what I uh, might be missing. And I call this put myself in a position to end up right even when I'm wrong um, so that I'm prepared to adjust if my initial assessment um, ends up in incorrect. Okay, so some cases to help illustrate these points. Um, this was a 56-year-old man with refractory leukemia um, receiving salvage chemotherapy who developed a violaceous plaque on the anterior neck that um, expanded rapidly over the course of the day. He'd been febrile and neutropenic. He'd had multiple negative blood cultures, and he was already on empiric meropenem, vancomycin, and voriconazole. And here's what that lesion looked like. So you can see it's this violaceous necrotic uh, plaque uh, with various zones of, uh, of tissue death. And on closer exam, he had a lesion on the tongue as well as on the scalp. So what should be in the differential here? You know, this patient is profoundly immunosuppressed. He's been neutropenic for a few weeks. What can we not afford to miss? And what would we do next? Would we get more blood cultures? Would we get a CT scan of the head and neck? Would we get a biopsy for frozen section processing or a biopsy for routine permanent section processing? Well, in this instance, we did a frozen section biopsy. And the reason for that is that we are able with that technique to get an answer. We'll be looking at the slides within about half an hour, as opposed to waiting at least a day uh, for the routine uh, processing to be uh, performed. Um, so when we did that, this is what we saw. Here we have a blood vessel that's cut on FOSS. And within that vessel, you see numerous thick ribbon-like structures, uh, as well as numerous clear circles, which are those ribbon-like structures cut on FOSS. And this vessel is just absolutely filled with angioinvasive um, fungal infection, likely mucormycosis. So the critical question now is, is this process localized or disseminated? Well, you've already done your full skin exam and you found additional lesions, so you know it's disseminated. Um, but we asked the team to go ahead and check some additional scans, some additional imaging. And here we see nodules in the lungs. Um, we see these wedge-shaped infarcts uh, in the kidneys. And then this is the lesion that ultimately did him in, um, uh, in, in the brain. And so uh, this is an illustration of just how important uh, our timely care uh, is to cases like this. Rapid diagnosis can guide uh, antibiotic coverage as well as potential debridement if there's only one lesion as opposed to disseminated process. And a key thing to know is that zygomycetes, including mucormycosis, this, this group of organisms are intrinsically resistant to voriconazole. Now patients are on voriconazole because that's the treatment of choice for aspergillus, which is the most common post-transplant opportunistic fungal infection. Um, but in this case, uh, these organisms are intrinsically resistant. So our ability to come in quickly, get a rapid diagnosis is gonna change antifungal coverage, it's gonna guide management, it's gonna guide decision-making for a very sick patient. Um, even though the outcome in this case wasn't favorable, um, you know, our input is, is really crucial. Um, so the clinical appearance of this lesion is what's referred to as the bullseye infarct of zygomycosis. And when I've encountered uh, zygomycetes or mucormycosis in the past, it often does have this look. Uh, and you can see here, it's really kind of concentric waves of, of tissue death. Um, this was a patient who was in our medical ICU for a couple of weeks um, with this lesion before we were called. And, you know, again, to the philosophical uh, points, you know, I'm not uh, really in the habit of giving a primary team a, a hard time. Um, you know, I know that they're calling for help because they don't know what they're seeing. Um, but uh, to me, that's uh, more forgivable than 
um, than sort of the effort gap. And, and what I mean by that is that whatever branch of medicine you're in, whatever type of patients you see on a regular basis, when you see something that's not quite right, that seems a little bit off, um, it's incumbent upon you as a healthcare professional to dig deeper, to ask that extra question, to call for help um, instead of explaining it away. And, and so this was a, a situation where the team was sort of consistently just saying, well, there's a bad bruise, you know, on the leg. Um, whereas, you know, really this lesion um, doesn't look like any bruise that, uh, that I've ever seen. Um, here's the biopsy for that patient. And, and here's a similar situation. This patient was in our surgical ICU for a couple of weeks with this process going on on the upper thigh and the scrotum. And you can see that the skin is really pretty far gone. It's sort of almost cadaveric looking skin. And here, a KOH prep uh, of the surface uh, shows uh, all of these hyphae. Um, the culture grew trichosporinosis, which is another opportunistic fungal infection. And then lastly, aspergillus. I mentioned this is the most common post-transplant opportunistic fungal infection. Um, and uh, here's uh, a touch prep of, of that lesion. So this is what's, uh, this is uh, a touch prep that's performed by basically doing a skin biopsy and then smearing the base of that biopsy on a glass slide or using a scalpel blade to scrape the defect and then smearing that on a glass slide and then interpreting it. And you can see um, these acute angle branching septate hyphae, which is pretty typical for aspergillus. So I've highlighted here um, a couple of uh, techniques, frozen section, um, KOH uh, prep, uh, as well as touch prep that really are geared toward rapid diagnosis to inform management. Um, and uh, this is what we're all about on the consult service when we're seeing sick patients. Um, we're looking to help um, uh, guide management as quickly as possible. So how about this young guy? He was 23. He also had refractory leukemia and was admitted for salvage chemotherapy. He too was neutropenic and febrile. Uh, and he developed this lesion, which really was not impressive from a clinical perspective. There's a little bit of purpura there, but it was quite tender to touch and, uh, and so therefore suspicious. We biopsied the area. Uh, here's the gram stain of the biopsy showing uh, numerous uh, gram-negative rods, and the culture ended up growing stenotrophomonas. Another good rule of thumb is that when you get back an organism you've never heard of before, you really should look it up. And uh, that's what we did in this case. I have to admit, I wasn't familiar with stenotrophomonas when I first saw this patient, but we looked it up and we found that this is an organism that's um, highly resistant to the typical antibiotics that we might use. It's not treated effectively by cefepime or zosin or meropenem or any of those. The treatment of choice is high-dose IV Bactrim. And uh, not only is that something that we needed to look up, it was also something that the primary team needed to look up, except that they didn't. Um, when we called the team and let them know about this, um, they, th they said, oh yeah, we have them on good broad spectrum coverage. And we had to point out that unfortunately this organism isn't treated by those drugs and that um, they really should call infectious diseases for, for additional help. Importantly, our tissue culture grew the organism about 48 hours before the blood culture is dead. Uh, and so this is another example of how dermatologic input really guided um, medical management uh, in a critical way. So all this is to say that we as consultants really need to know when a situation demands urgent attention and we should relish those opportunities. This is a chance for us to make a real difference for our patients. Uh, and now I've added in parentheses our colleagues as well, because really what they're looking for is guidance. You know, sometimes that we may be consulted for something that we're not worried about. Um, we may still decide to do a biopsy if we sense that the team is really worried about it. And the reason for that is that by ruling out 
a particular process, we can allow the team to refocus on potentially some other important process going on, right? And so ruling out is sometimes as important as ruling in, um, and this is a, a critical role that we can play. All right, so how about this patient? He's 52, he comes into the hospital uh, with a quote unquote bug bite on the right hand. Um, this is his cell phone picture uh, showing the original lesion. Um, he's treated with broad spectrum antibiotics for possible cellulitis. The site becomes necrotic and he goes for debridement, um, followed by uh, wound breakdown and further debridement and, following, and, and ultimately um, successive amputations. The entire time his blood and tissue cultures are, are negative and he's ultimately transferred uh, to Penn with a request for hyperbaric oxygen therapy because this wound is quote unquote not healing. Um, well, here's what his arm looks like at the time that he's transferred. And there are many, many learning points from this case. Um, but first and foremost, uh, when something doesn't respond to a particular treatment as you expect it to, you absolutely have to take a step back, reevaluate and reassess, do you have the right diagnosis? And in this case, that didn't happen um, early enough. Well, that was his right arm. Here's his left arm. And you can see there's quite an impressive ulcer there as well. Um, his presentation at the time of transfer is notable uh, for tachycardia, hypotension, um, hypoxia, confusion. He's got a white count of 40. This guy really looks septic. So that's the operative question, right? Is he infected or not? And, you know, what I would say is maybe, you know, he could be infected. I'm certainly not telling anyone to stop antibiotics. Uh, on a patient who looks like that and has vitals that look like that. Um, but there are some features here that make us highly suspicious for pyoderma gangrenosum. Um, number one, this clinical appearance of the violaceous gunmetal gray border is very typical. And you can see here uh, in other pictures of pyoderma gangrenosum, the violaceous gunmetal gray border uh, at the wound edge, as well as the violaceous pustule, which is often how these lesions are described as starting. And secondly, you have this history of pathogy, uh, which is injury to the skin creating or worsening a lesion. And the literature says that happens about a third of the time uh, in PG, uh, but uh, however often it happens, it's highly uh, characteristic uh, when it does. And, and certainly that's what was going on here as they took him to the OR, you know, well-meaning, um, they were unwittingly making the process worse. So when we're thinking about PG, and I'll say I get a lot of referrals for pyoderma gangrenosum which I ultimately end up deciding are not pyoderma gangrenosum. So this is a tough diagnosis to make, um, in, especially in the outpatient setting um, for complicated wounds. Um, so we like to do our due diligence. We don't want to cut corners. We like to get a biopsy and a tissue culture um, of the violaceous border um, as a way of ruling out other processes. We also want to think about potential underlying medical conditions. So about half to two thirds of the time, um, the patient may have an underlying uh, process. So we need a good thorough exam, review of systems. Um, in particular, we're interested in GI and joint symptoms, constitutional symptoms, and we're going to get a targeted workup, as I've listed here, um, to help try to um, uh, find uh, some potential underlying conditions. Here's an example of a patient like that. She had myelodysplastic syndrome and developed uh, wounds that looked like pyoderma gangrenosum at the site of a port placement for receiving chemotherapy. Um, the resident who was working with me, you know, made the correct diagnosis, but kind of stopped there. And, and the question that I posed uh, to her was, you know, is PG associated with myelosplastic syndrome? Or, you know, is there a reason this is happening right now? 
And it turns out that PG is associated with myelospastic syndrome, but uh, we had the team re uh, repeat a bone marrow biopsy, and, and now it shows 20% blast, which meets the definition of AML. Um, so this is a patient whose PG has heralded the transformation of myelodysplastic syndrome into acute leukemia. And there are some cases in the literature uh, showing that as well. And so we always want to ask that why here, why now question, because what we see on the skin can indicate uh, and tell us something about an underlying disorder. So back to our patient, you know, the way I see it, there are two critical management issues. The first is that this patient really looks septic, he's quite sick. Um, and the second is that he's lost his right hand and he now has a, a limb-threatening left arm ulcer. And so um, we have a, sort of a palpable sense that what we do next and how quickly we do it is gonna make a real difference. So do we wait for the biopsy and the tissue culture to come back before we treat? Well, could that sepsis-like picture be infection? I've said yes already. I'm not telling anyone to stop antibiotics, but it also could be due to systemic inflammation from PG itself. And so PG can affect other organs. Most commonly, this is actually due to just diffuse inflammation. So this sort of capillary leak phenomenon where patients can develop um, multiple systemic symptoms. Um, so this patient's leukocytosis is confusion, is shortness of breath, all of these things are explainable by PG. And, you know, this is not such a stretch when we think about the full spectrum of neutrophilic dermatoses. Sweet syndrome is also called acute febrile neutrophilic dermatosis. And these patients can develop fever. Um, they can develop um, arthritis. This is a patient every time he had um, active skin lesions developed painful arthritis in his wrists um, that when the rheumatologist uh, tapped the joint, it um, showed numerous neutrophils um, with sterile culture. Of course, it's a neutrophilic dermatosis. Um, patients with uh, acute inflammation and sweet syndrome can develop pulmonary infiltrates, hypoxia. They can have terrific pathogy, like this patient here. We biopsied this area, and you can see that day after day, it just totally blows up, and my little stitch is buried in there, um, just to illustrate that, um, like pyodermagangrenosum sweets, can have pathogy. And these patients can even develop a SERS or, or, or septic shock-like picture, um, like this patient. Um, who, uh, we had been who we had seen earlier in his hospitalization, diagnosed sweet syndrome, treated it uh, with prednisone and clobetazole, and, uh, and then happened upon him and his wife in the ICU a couple of weeks later and learned that upon tapering his steroids, he became acutely ill, um, decompensated, went to the ICU, is now on pressors for his hypotension, he's intubated, uh, and with the help of uh, of a resident who put together this chart, we were able to show that every time this patient tapered steroids, which of course are the treatment for um, sweet syndrome, neutrophilic dermatoses, every time we tapered the steroids, his, his fever would go up, his white count would go up, he would become hypoxic, hypotensive, and he'd go back to the ICU. So we were able to show the team that really this was his sweet syndrome that was doing this rather than uh, an infection. You know, to have those discussions, you really need to take time, right? You have to go to the trouble of, of, of huddling up with the team, of explaining the disease process, teaching them, and making a case why this patient needs steroids, for example. In addition to causing systemic illness, this is also quite clearly a limb-threatening process. And here I've put an arrow to show that, you know, uh, we, we like to biopsy the border. And in fact, the, biop the border was biopsied. Uh, one day prior, but now that border isn't the border anymore. So this is a rapidly enlarging lesion. It's limb-threatening. 
and we get the sense that we really don't have a lot of time to waste. So there's a cost to inaction. Well, what about the cost of action, right? So what's the team worried about? Well, if we give systemic steroids and this guy winds up having an infection, is he going to get sicker? That, that's what they're worried about. Um, but I would submit that steroids can be used safely in the setting of infection, especially when the patient's receiving treatment for a known infection or suspected infection with appropriate antibiotics. And in fact, we give steroids for pressor refractory sepsis uh, when a patient is hypotensive despite um, attempts to manage blood pressure uh, with pressors. And finally, because PG is very steroid responsive, we're going to know pretty quickly whether we're on the right track. And so while ruling out other diagnoses is important, in some cases, quick action may be critical. And we really, as the, as the expert, you know, we have to have courage to think through those different possibilities, you know, the costs, the benefits. We need to have discussions with the primary team in order to make um, these, uh, these assessments. So here's our patient. Um, one day after starting systemic steroids, you can see that that violaceous gunmetal gray border is already melting away. And he's systemically, he's doing much better as well. He's actually able um, to go to the floor, leave the ICU and go to the floor. So we need to use, or we can use, that inflammatory violaceous border to help answer the question whether we have the right diagnosis and also to gauge response to therapy and guide our steroid taper. And of course, we use this in uh, the outpatient setting as well. We're looking at that, we're looking for that inflammatory border to, to know if we're, we've got active PG or if we can taper steroids or if we need to do something else with, a man with our management. Here's a patient who developed pyodermaganglionosum at the site of a hernia repair, um, had wound breakdown taken back to the OR. Um, the wound became necrotic again, we were called. And you can see that classic violaceous gunmetal gray border. Here she is after starting steroids a few days earlier. And, you know, I can walk into the room and with a straight face, I can say that this looks great. And of course, then I have to backtrack and say, well, it looks great from a pyodermaganglionosum perspective. All that inflammation is gone. This border looks great. It's still a huge wound. It's going to take time to heal. We're going to work hard on that together. Um, but from an inflammatory disease perspective, we're on the right track. So back to our patient, day after day, he improves. He's able to heal that wound and go back to the OR um, to repair this site as well. So even the largest of these ulcers can heal. Um, successful management of PG can be really rewarding. And while you know a Mohs surgeon might not put this photo in their uh, portfolio of great um, surgical outcomes, you know, for a medical dermatologist, this isn't half bad. Okay, so we don't want to be afraid to advocate for our patients. We have to communicate with the primary team and other consulting services to play this critical advocacy role. All right, so how about this patient? Uh, he's 86. He comes into the hospital with GI bleed in the setting of therapeutic anticoagulation. Um, he gets a chest x-ray coming through the door, has a lung nodule that ends up being diagnosed as lung cancer. We are called to evaluate this rash on the lower legs. Our biopsy shows small vessel vasculitis and our direct immunofluorescence uh, study uh, shows perivascular IgA. So we call this patient IgA vasculitis, otherwise known as Hennig-Schönlein purpura. So when a patient presents with lesions suspicious for vasculitis, our workup really is trying to answer three basic questions. Number one, are the lesions in fact due to vasculitis or some mimicker? Are there findings which help us establish a particular diagnosis? And are other organ systems involved? You know, probably most importantly. 
So we know that IJ vasculitis or Hennig-Schein line purpura presents exactly like sort of the garden variety cutaneous small vessel vasculitis or leukocytoclastic vasculitis um, that we might expect to see uh, more frequently. Um, but these patients are at higher risk of GI and joint involvement, as well as in 40% renal involvement. And so that's what we're most interested in. We're interested in whether this patient's gonna have blood or protein in the urine. Um, if he has glomerulonephritis, and here I've drawn uh, somewhat clumsily a glomerulus, if he has immune complex deposition in the glomerulus and has inflammatory response and, and you know destruction of that structure, now that filter of the kidney isn't working so well and you have blood and protein that spills out into the urine. And you can see things like red blood cell casts in the urine. So we asked the team to check a urinalysis and it comes back with 50 to 100 red blood cells. And so the right next step is to ask for nephrology to see the patient, to examine the urine more closely, to help us decide if this patient has glomerulonephritis from his vasculitis and if he, he should receive more aggressive management. But instead of that, uh, this patient is discharged. And uh, I looked back at the discharge document later and uh, it said uh, in this 86-year-old Cantonese-speaking only gentleman, uh, the discharge document simply said, call nephrology for an appointment. So this was not the best inpatient to outpatient handoff. At any rate, um, he, he winds back up in rheumatology clinic where they give him 10 milligrams a day of prednisone to help uh, treat his rash. By the time we get him rescheduled to see us in Derm, he doesn't have any rash anymore, but I'm really not interested in the rash at this point so much as I am interested in his kidneys. A repeat urinalysis shows packed RBCs, and I also ordered a urine protein creatinine ratio, which comes back at 10. Um, anything over three is nephrotic range proteinuria. Um, anything over you know, 500 milligrams is uh, a lot. Um, and this guy has 10 grams. Um, so a huge amount of protein in his urine, his creatinine is two. And so for this little old man, you know, that's a GFR uh, probably around 15. Um, so his kidney function is, is not so great. Um, of course, we get him in rapidly to see nephrology and he's diagnosed with glomerulonephritis. So we think of uh, IJ vasculitis or hennig like purpura as being most common in kids. And it certainly is most common in kids, but I have quite a few adult patients with it as well. Um, it's often triggered by a preceding infection like a URI or strep. Um, overall, about 40% of cases due to infection and 20% due to medication. Um, keep in mind that uh, rarely um, you can have IJ vasculitis that's a perineoplastic phenomenon. Um, that is by far most common in older men. And the most common cancer that's identified is actually lung cancer. So um, it's unclear whether our patient who had lung cancer, um, whether that was his trigger of vasculitis in this case. Um, but I'll say that whenever I'm making this diagnosis of IJ vasculitis in an older male patient, I always make sure that they're up to date with their age appropriate cancer screening and have a low threshold for getting a chest CT, particularly if they have any smoking history. There are some factors which we think of as predicting renal involvement. Um, patients who are uh, not kids, if they've got persistent rash, severe abdominal pain, um, any abnormal uh, findings on the urinalysis uh, at the beginning, those things are red flags. Fortunately, most of these patients do well, but it very much depends on what's happening with their kidneys. So um, we recommend that they get frequent urinalysis and blood pressure monitoring um, especially for the first month. Um, studies have shown that if they're gonna develop renal involvement, by and large, they do so within the first month, although it can happen up to six months. And so um, it's worth following um, over time up to that point. Usually nephrology will start patients on things like ACE inhibitors. Um, they'll man manage their blood pressure uh, with that. Um, they may put them on steroids. Um, 
mycophenolate as a steroid sparing agent just sort of depends on the level of renal involvement. Okay, so remember, as the dermatologist, um, sometimes we have an inferiority complex. Um, we may not have had as much medicine training, and so there's this assumption sometimes that, you know, uh, every, you know the medicine team's going to know better. It doesn't have to be a vasculitis patient in the hospital. It could be another patient in your clinic. Um, but there are going to be instances where you know the disease, you know what should happen. You can't assume that the other providers are going to know or that they somehow know better than you. So when you see that something's important, speak up, say something, um, make sure that it happens the way that you think that it should happen in order to protect that patient. So don't be afraid to help guide medical management when it's appropriate. This was a, another patient who helps illustrate that point. She was 54, had a history of GERD, who presented with these purpuric macules and typos on the legs. She had multi-system complaints and had seen multiple providers in our system uh, for those. I was finally referred to me um, as a consult for vasculitis. Uh, but when I took a closer look, uh, I, I really thought this didn't look like the typical palpable purpura that I expect to see. Rather, this looked more like perifollicular hemorrhage, and you can see some interesting um, twisted hairs in here as well. Uh, and so that, those really are the diagnostic keys here, the perifollicular hemorrhage and the corkscrew hairs, which are typical of scurvy, vitamin C deficiency. And I asked her some more questions about her diet. She has, remember, GERD, and she's been eating a very restricted diet because of that and has become vitamin C deficient. Here's a biopsy which shows follicular hyperkeratosis as well as some perifollicular hemorrhage, which is typical in scurvy, and her vitamin C level comes back undetectable. Within days, though, um, she develops seizures and she's admitted to an outside hospital ICU in status epilepticus. I heard about this. I called the outpatient, the outside hospital ICU, and, uh, and told them what my suspicions were about her diagnosis. Fortunately, her son, who had been at the appointment with me uh, and his mom, um, had also told the ICU team. And so they had started IV vitamin C, after which the patient improved uh, and recovered. So why did this all happen? What are, why are these clinical manifestations with scurvy? Well, vitamin C is an essential cofactor in collagen production. So when it's absent, you have deficient production of vessels and hair and, and uh, in the skin. And so you get this fragility of blood vessels, you get this follicular hyperkeratosis, these corkscrew hairs. And if the process uh, persists, you can get, of course, gingivitis, um, bruising, poor wound healing. Patients can become fatigued and they'll have diffuse myalgias and arthralgias actually because of subperiosteal hemorrhage. There's actually bleeding uh, around the bones, which is very painful. Um, in very severe cases, they can develop neuropsychiatric, cardiovascular, pulmonary symptoms, uh, and even cerebral uh, edema, cerebral hemorrhage, and seizures, uh, as well as death. And so while we think of this as sort of a novelty diagnosis these days, you might see it you know, a handful of times in your career and everybody wants to come show off the scurvy case that they found. We should remember that in the age of sea exploration, very, very many people died of scurvy. And so this is not a disease that, uh, that necessarily ends well. And so the moral of the story is, of course, I made the right diagnosis, that's great. Um, but in a way I doubted myself. I said, well, let's wait for the biopsy. Let's wait for the vitamin C level to come back. There's literally no downside to starting vitamin C supplementation. You're not gonna, that's, that's not gonna hurt anything. Um, you know, I can't say 
with Definity whether having whether doing that would have prevented seizures. Um, but certainly, I asked myself that question. Um, and so the point here is that diagnostic momentum can be hard to slow. Remember, this patient had been seen by multiple other providers in our system. They're thinking some autoimmune disease, maybe vasculitis. And here I am kind of coming in and saying, oh, I think it's scurvy, right? And even though I felt like 99% sure, there was something in the back of my head that said, well, let me just get diagnostic confirmation before I plow ahead with this. We can't be afraid to challenge assumptions or make treatment recommendations based on concerns that we have. We need to be humble, but don't doubt your insights as a specialist. So again, don't sell yourself short. Don't assume the primary team knows better, but rather guide medical management when it's appropriate. Uh, and for the last section here, um, I'll show you a couple of additional cases. This was a 63-year-old man with sarcoidosis who had a heart transplantation. He was on chronic immunosuppressive therapy with prednisone and tacrolimus, and he presented with headache and a pustular eruption on the shoulders. Um, and this patient, interestingly enough, had recently been hospitalized at our hospital with um, dysuria and ultimately got a diagnosis of prostatitis, was given antibiotics and discharged. But literally on the drive home, he was sounding confused, kind of talking in a weird way, and his wife uh, basically did a U-turn and drove him right back to the ER. Well, here's his rash. It's on the shoulders. Here's the left shoulder, uh, and here's the right. And uh, what would you do next? Well, you know, I'll admit I wasn't totally sure what this was. You know, it looked like some kind of weird folliculitis, some kind of acneiform eruption, maybe herpetic. The diagnosis really wasn't clear clinically, but given the atypical appearance and the fact that this guy was immunosuppressed, we decided to cast a wide net. So I did a biopsy for H&E and tissue culture, sent HSV PCR, culture to pustule. Anytime you have the ability to send something for culture, um, you know, uh, that's sterile that you can unroof in, in culture, certainly worth doing that. Um, and then because I like bedside diagnostics, uh, I did a Zang smear. And I remember it pretty vividly. This was uh, Friday uh, evening, probably about 6 p.m. I uh, took the slide back to our, our lab. I did a Zang smear and I looked at the scope. I looked at it under the scope and I saw this and I sort of rubbed my eyes, took a closer look, brought it to the, the nicer scope in Durham Path and then took a bunch of pictures because this was actually a Zank smear showing just sheets of cryptococcus. Um, and so this would be termed gelatinous crypto. And you can see the Zank smear is this purple color and the crypto has these thick, uh, non-staining gelatinous capsules. When we see cutaneous crypto, it's disseminated crypto until proven otherwise. Of course, this patient's CSF studies, his serum cryptoantigen were positive. Of course, his mental status changes were due to crypto uh, meningitis, and he's treated appropriately with amphotericin plus flucytosine and then fluconazole. That's the typical regimen for crypto. So we think about crypto as being um, molluscum-like uh, in, in patients with AIDS, and, and here you see that presentation of this kind of over-the-top molluscum-like lesions, and here's the India ink showing crypto. Um, but it turns out that in transplant patients, like our pa patient here with a heart transplant, the most common presentation is um, acneiform lesions, so acne-like papules and pustules. So in an immunosuppressed patient, it's always worth at least keeping that in the back of your head. All right, so the last case, um, lest you think I only show cases uh, where I'm right or lest you think I'm always right, I'll show you that I'm not. Um, this was a 45-year-old man with a history of heart transplantation who was on chronic immunosuppressive therapy, who came in 
with this erythematous patch on the leg um, and an elevated white blood cell count, um, was being treated empirically for cellulitis with broad spectrum antibiotics. Uh, and the report that we got was that actually he was doing quite well, that this erythema had regressed, that he looked great, um, and we were just being consulted for sort of residual uh, erythema. And so, you know, when you um, get used to seeing rashes in the hospital, uh, the same rash in the hospital day after day after day, you sort of get used to this concept of a patient, um, what, we, what we term bleeding into the rash. So basically, um, the rash has been there for a while, um, it's in a dependent area, maybe they're thrombocytopenic, and it becomes purpuric simply because it's been there for a while and red blood cells just get trapped in the skin. And so we looked at this and we saw, well, this is the posterior thigh, you know, um, he had a little bit down on his lower leg. We thought, yeah, this is probably that phenomenon. The guy looked great, you know, looks like, sounds like he's improved a lot, looks great. Um, you know, let's, let's just continue current management. And that's what we decided to do. But at the same time, we decided let's think about, you know, what else could be going on here. Let's dig a little deeper. And part of digging a little deeper was really exploring the reason for the consult. Now, this patient was being managed by um, the uh, heart uh, failure unit, um, and they're very good at cardiac care, but um, they often don't um, necessarily um, have sort of the overall view of everything else, and they don't always know exactly why they're calling consults. So the, so the people who are managing the patients during the day are sort of told, hey, call Derm, but they don't always have a good sense of you know, what the question is. And it turns out that this particular consult originated really with transplant ID. And you know, those guys are pretty smart. They usually have something in mind. And we reached out to them and they said, well, you know, the guy does look good. He seems healthy. But what's weird to us is that his white blood cell count is sort of staying elevated. And uh, you know, we would have expected it to come down. So we made a plan uh, that if the process was persisting, um, you know, that we would, uh, you know, based on that information, we would uh, circle back and, and, and uh, uh, do a biopsy. And so that's what we did. And you can see here uh, in the biopsy, some structures that are uh, not quite uh, human looking. And here uh, on the stain, uh, you see again, these thick uh, capsules, and this ends up also being crypto. And sure enough, his lumbar puncture reveals um, that he has cryptomeningitis as well. So this is a, a pretty rare presentation of crypto, this sort of cellulitis-like presentation. Um, it's not the first thing I would think of with this presentation. But the point is that uh, this patient being immunosuppressed is susceptible to, to, to weird things happening. And this is an illustration of that final point that I mentioned at the beginning, which is that while I'm a fan of putting my nickel down, I mean, that's the fun of saying what I think is going on clinically, offering my reasoning to the resident, to the to people I'm working with, you know, we sh that's part of the fun of clinical medicine, right? But at the same time, it's also useful to say out loud what you might be missing, right? Make a list, understand what else could be going on, and make a plan for what you're going to do if something's not, you know, progressing the way you think it should, or it's not responding the way you think it should to treatment. And I call this put yourself in a position to end up right even when you're wrong. So in this case, you know, we couldn't be beholden to yesterday's or someone else's diagnosis. We have to avoid what's termed premature closure bias. We don't want to latch onto a diagnosis and bury our heads in the sand and never consider any other. Rather, we want to gather sufficient information, develop a differential, 
identify and investigate red flags appropriately. And here I would say that, you know, ID, uh, transplant ID, being worried about the patient is a red flag. Um, consider the worst case scenario, what you don't want to miss, and consult with a colleague. And that's how you put yourself in a position to end up right even when you're wrong. So in summary, I think we can agree that DERM, like other subspecialties, encompasses a, a highly specialized body of knowledge. Um, for this reason, we have a tremendous ability to shape patient care, but we really have to be present and available to do so. So the importance of, of being available, not only to go into the hospital and see patients, but also in the outpatient setting, being willing to see urgent requests, urgent referrals from our colleagues. I found over and over again that those are often the most interesting patients and you really are making a difference and your colleagues will really appreciate it when you do that. Our reward uh, for serving in this capacity, whether inpatient or out, is helping patients first and foremost, guiding our colleagues like no one else can, and really seeing some pretty amazing cases in the process. So remember, um, my keys at least to successful inpatient consultation are that we need to know when a situation demands urgent attention and relish those opportunities to make a real difference. Don't be afraid to advocate for your patients to go to bat for them um, when you think that they need a particular management uh, based on your understanding of their disease. Don't sell yourself short, never assume the primary team knows better. And finally, put your nickel down, but say out loud what you might be missing so you can end up right even when you're wrong. So I'll stop there uh, and I'll be happy to take any questions.